Section 14 of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates by Howard Pyle. Compiled by Merle Johnson. Blueskin the Pirate, Part 3. Subchapter 11. The winter had passed, spring had passed, and summer had come. Whatever Hiram had felt, he had made no sign of suffering. Nevertheless, his lumpy face had begun to look flabby, his cheeks hollow, and his loose-jointed body shrunk more awkwardly together into its clothes. He was often awake at night, sometimes walking up and down his room until far into the small hours. It was through such a wakeful spell as this that he entered into the greatest, the most terrible, happening of his life. It was a sulphurously hot night in July. The air was like the breath of a furnace, and it was a hard matter to sleep, with even the easiest mind and under the most favorable circumstances. The full moon shone in through the open window, laying a white square of light upon the floor, and Hiram, as he paced up and down, up and down, walked directly through it, his gaunt figure starting out at every turn into sudden brightness as he entered the straight line of misty light. The clock in the kitchen whirred and rang out the hour of twelve, and Hiram stopped in his walk to count the strokes. The last vibration died away into silence, and still he stood motionless, now listening with a new and sudden intentness, for, even as the clock rang the last stroke, he heard soft, heavy footsteps moving slowly and cautiously along the pathway before the house and directly below the open window. A few seconds more, and he heard the creaking of rusty hinges. The mysterious visitor had entered the mill. Hiram crept softly to the window and looked out. The moon shone full on the dusty, shingled face of the old mill, not thirty steps away, and he saw that the door was standing wide open. A second or two of stillness followed, and then, as he stood looking intently, he saw the figure of a man suddenly appear, sharp and vivid, from the gaping blackness of the open doorway. Hiram could see his face as clear as day. It was Levi West, and he carried an empty meal-bag over his arm. Levi West stood looking from right to left for a second or two, and then he took off his hat and wiped his brow with the back of his hand. Then he softly closed the door behind him and left the mill as he had come, and with the same cautious step. Hiram looked down upon him as he passed close to the house and almost directly beneath. He could have touched him with his hand. Fifty or sixty yards from the house, Levi stopped, and a second figure arose from the black shadow in the angle of the worm fence and joined him. They stood for a while talking together, Levi pointing now and then toward the mill. Then the two turned, and climbing over the fence, cut across an open field and through the tall shaggy grass toward the southeast. Hiram straightened himself and drew a deep breath, and the moon, shining full upon his face, showed it twisted, convulsed, as it had been when he had fronted his stepbrother seven months before in the kitchen. Great beads of sweat stood on his brow, and he wiped them away with his sleeve. Then, coatless, hatless as he was, he swung himself out of the window, dropped upon the grass, and without an instant of hesitation strode off down the road in the direction that Levi West had taken. As he climbed the fence where the two men had climbed it, he could see them in the pallid light, far away across the level scrubby meadowland, walking toward a narrow strip of pine woods. 
A little later they entered the sharp-cut shadows beneath the trees and were swallowed in the darkness. With fixed eyes and closed-shut lips, as doggedly, as inexorably as though he were a nemesis hunting his enemy down, Hiram followed their footsteps across the stretch of moonlit open. Then, by and by, he also was in the shadow of the pines. Here not a sound broke the midnight hush. His feet made no noise upon the resinous softness of the ground below. In that dead, pulseless silence he could distinctly hear the distant voices of Levi and his companion, sounding loud and resonant in the hollow of the woods. Beyond the woods was a cornfield, and presently he heard the rattling of the harsh leaves as the two plunged into the tasseled jungle. Here, as in the woods, he followed them, step by step, guided by the noise of their progress through the canes. Beyond the cornfield ran a road that, skirting to the south of Luz, led across a wooden bridge to the wide salt marshes that stretched between the town and the distant sand-hills. Coming out upon this road, Hiram found that he had gained upon those he followed, and that they now were not fifty paces away, and he could see that Levi's companion carried over his shoulder what looked like a bundle of tools. He waited for a little while to let them gain their distance, and for the second time wiped his forehead with his shirt-sleeve. Then, without ever once letting his eyes leave them, he climbed the fence to the roadway. For a couple of miles or more he followed the two along the white level highway, past silent, sleeping houses, past barns, sheds, and haystacks looming big in the moonlight, past fields and woods and clearings, past the dark and silent skirts of the town, and so at last out upon the wide misty salt marshes, which seemed to stretch away interminably through the pallid light, yet were bounded in the far distance by the long white line of sand hills. Across the level salt marshes he followed them, through the rank sedge and past the glossy pools in which his own inverted image stalked beneath as he stalked above. On and on, until at last they had reached a belt of scrub pines, gnarled and gray, that fringed the foot of the white sand hills. Here Hiram kept within the black network of shadow. The two whom he followed walked more in the open, with their shadows, as black as ink, walking along in the sand beside them, and now, in the dead, breathless stillness, might be heard, chill and heavy, the distant thumping, pounding roar of the Atlantic surf, beating on the beach at the other side of the sand hills, half a mile away. At last the two rounded the southern end of the white bluff, and when Hiram, following, rounded it also, they were no longer to be seen. Before him the sand hill rose, smooth and steep, cutting in a sharp ridge against the sky. Up this steep hill trailed the footsteps of those he followed, disappearing over the crest. Beyond the ridge lay a round, bowl-like hollow, perhaps fifty feet across and eighteen or twenty feet deep, scooped out by the eddying of the winds into an almost perfect circle. Hiram, slowly, cautiously, stealthily, followed their trailing line of footmarks, mounted to the top of the hillock and peered down into the bowl beneath. The two men were sitting upon the sand, not far from the tall, skeleton-like shaft of a dead pine tree that rose, stark and gray, from the sand in which it may once have been buried centuries ago. Subchapter 12 Levi had taken off his coat and waistcoat and was fanning himself with his hat. He was sitting upon the bag he had brought from the mill, and which he had spread out upon the sand. His companion sat facing him. The moon shone full upon him, and Hiram knew him instantly. He was the same burly, forly-looking ruffian who had come with the little man to the mill that night to see Levi. 
He also had his hat off, and was wiping his forehead and face with a red handkerchief. Beside him lay the bundle of tools he had brought, a couple of shovels, a piece of rope, and a long, sharp iron rod. The two men were talking together, but Hiram could not understand what they said, for they spoke in the same foreign language that they had before used. But he could see his stepbrother point with his finger, now to the dead tree, and now to the steep white face of the opposite side of the bowl-like hollow. At last, having apparently rested themselves, the conference, if conference it was, came to an end, and Levi led the way, the other following, to the dead pine tree. Here he stopped and began searching, as though for some mark. Then, having found that which he looked for, he drew a tape-line and a large brass pocket-compass from his pocket. He gave one end of the tape-line to his companion, holding the other with his thumb pressed upon a particular part of the tree. Taking his bearings by the compass, he gave now and then some orders to the other, who moved a little to the left or the right as he bade. At last he gave a word of command, and thereupon his companion drew a wooden peg from his pocket and thrust it into the sand. From this peg as a base they again measured, taking bearings by the compass, and again drove a peg. For a third time they repeated their measurements, and then, at last, seemed to have reached the point which they aimed for. Here Levi marked a cross with his heel upon the sand. His companion brought him the pointed rod which lay beside the shovels, and then stood watching as Levi thrust it deep into the sand, again and again, as though sounding for some object below. It was some while before he found that for which he was seeking, but at last the rod struck with a jar upon some hard object below. After making sure of success by one or two additional taps with the rod, Levi left it remaining where it stood, brushing the sand from his hands. "'Now fetch the shovels, Pedro,' said he, speaking for the first time in English. The two men were busy for a long while, shoveling away the sand. The object for which they were seeking lay buried some six feet deep, and the work was heavy and laborious, the shifting sand sliding back again and again into the hole. But at last— the blade of one of the shovels struck upon some hard substance, and Levi stooped and brushed away the sand with the palm of his hand. Levi's companion climbed out of the hole which they had dug, and tossed the rope which he had brought with the shovels down to the other. Levi made it fast to some object below, and then himself mounted to the level of the sand above. Pulling together, the two drew up from the hole a heavy iron-bound box, nearly three feet long and a foot wide and deep. Levi's companion stooped and began untying the rope which had been lashed to a ring in the lid. What happened next happened suddenly, swiftly, terribly. Levi drew back a single step and shot one quick keen look to right and to left. He passed his hand rapidly behind his back, and the next moment Hiram saw the moonlight gleam upon the long, sharp, keen blade of a knife. Levi raised his arm. Then, just as the other arose from bending over the chest, he struck and struck again, two swift powerful blows. Hiram saw the blade dive, clean and sharp, into the back, and heard the hilt strike with a dull thud against the ribs, once, twice. The burly, black-bearded wretch gave a shrill, terrible cry and fell staggering back. Then, in an instant, with another cry, he was up and clutched Levi with a clutch of despair by the throat and by the arm. Then followed a struggle, short, terrible, silent. Not a sound was heard but the deep panting breath and the scuffling of feet in the sand, upon which there now poured and dabbled a dark purple stream. But it was a one-sided struggle, and lasted only for a second or two. 
Levi wrenched his arm loose from the wounded man's grasp, tearing his shirt-sleeve from the wrist to the shoulder as he did so. Again and again the cruel knife was lifted, and again and again it fell, now no longer bright, but stained with red. Then suddenly all was over. Levi's companion dropped to the sand without a sound, like a bundle of rags. For a moment he lay limp and inert. Then one shuddering spasm passed over him, and he lay silent and still, with his face half buried in the sand. Levi, with the knife still gripped tight in his hand, stood leaning over his victim, looking down upon his body. His shirt and hand, and even his naked arm, were stained and blotched with blood. The moon lit up his face, and it was the face of a devil from hell. At last he gave himself a shake, stooped and wiped his knife and hand and arm upon the loose petticoat breeches of the dead man. He thrust his knife back into its sheath, drew a key from his pocket, and unlocked the chest. In the moonlight Hiram could see that it was filled mostly with paper and leather bags, full, apparently, of money. All through this awful struggle and its awful ending, Hiram lay, dumb and motionless, upon the crest of the sand-hill, looking with a horrid fascination upon the death-struggle in the pit below. Now Hiram arose. The sand slid whispering down from the crest as he did so, but Levi was too intent in turning over the contents of the chest to notice the slight sound. Hiram's face was ghastly pale and drawn. For one moment he opened his lips as though to speak, but no word came. So, white, silent, he stood for a few seconds, rather like a statue than a living man. Then suddenly his eyes fell upon the bag, which Levi had brought with him, no doubt, to carry back the treasure for which he and his companion were in search, and which still lay spread out on the sand where it had been flung. Then, as though a thought had suddenly flashed upon him, his whole expression changed, his lips closed tightly together as though fearing an involuntary sound might escape, and the haggard look dissolved from his face. Cautiously, slowly, he stepped over the edge of the sand-hill and down the slanting face. His coming was as silent as death, for his feet made no noise as he sank ankle-deep in the yielding surface. So, stealthily, step by step, he descended, reached the bag, lifted it silently. Levi, still bending over the chest and searching through the papers within, was not four feet away. Hiram raised the bag in his hands. He must have made some slight rustle as he did so, for suddenly Levi half turned his head. But he was one instant too late. In a flash the bag was over his head, shoulders, arms, body. Then came another struggle, as fierce, as silent, as desperate as that other, and as short. Wiry, tough, and strong as he was, with a lean, sinewy, nervous vigor, fighting desperately for his life as he was, Levi had no chance against the ponderous strength of his stepbrother. In any case, the struggle could not have lasted long. As it was, Levi stumbled backward over the body of his dead mate and fell, with Hiram upon him. Maybe he was stunned by the fall, maybe he felt the hopelessness of resistance, for he lay quite still while Hiram, kneeling upon him, drew the rope from the ring of the chest, and without uttering a word, bound it tightly around both the bag and the captive within, knotting it again and again and drawing it tight. Only once was a word spoken. "'If you'll let me go,' said a muffled voice from the bag, "'I'll give you five thousand pounds. It's in that there box.' Hiram answered never a word, but continued knotting the rope and drawing it tight. Sub-Chapter 13 the Scorpion Sloop of War lay in Lou's harbor all that winter and spring, probably upon the slim chance of a return of the pirates. It was about eight o'clock in the morning, and Lieutenant Maynard, 
was sitting in squire hall's office fanning himself with his hat and talking in a desultory fashion suddenly the dim and distant noise of a great crowd was heard from without coming nearer and nearer the squire and his visitor hurried to the door the crowd was coming down the street shouting jostling struggling some on the footway some in the roadway heads were at the doors and windows looking down upon them nearer they came and nearer then at last they could see that the press surrounded and accompanied one man it was hiram white hatless coatless the sweat running down his face in streams but stolid and silent as ever over his shoulder he carried a bag tied round and round with a rope it was not until the crowd and the man it surrounded had come quite near that the squire and the lieutenant saw that a pair of legs in grey yarn stockings hung from the bag it was a man he was carrying hiram had lugged his burden five miles that morning without help and was scarcely a rest on the way he came directly toward the squire's office and still surrounded and hustled by the crowd up the steep steps to the office within he flung his burden heavily upon the floor without a word and wiped his streaming forehead the squire stood with his knuckles on his desk staring first at hiram and then at the strange burden he had brought a sudden hush fell upon all though the voices of those without sounded as loud and turbulent as ever what is it hiram said squire hall at last then for the first time hiram spoke panting thickly it's a bloody murderer said he pointing a quivering finger at the motionless figure here some of you called out the squire come untie this man who is he a dozen willing fingers quickly unknotted the rope and the bag was slipped from the head and body hair and face and eyebrows and clothes were powdered with meal but in spite of all and through all the innocent whiteness dark spots and blotches and smears of blood showed upon head and arm and shirt levi raised himself upon his elbow and looked scowlingly around at the amazed wonderstruck faces surrounding him why it's levi west croaked the squire at last finding his voice then suddenly lieutenant maynard pushed forward before the others crowded around the figure on the floor and clutching levi by the hair dragged his head backward so as to better see his face levi west said he in a loud voice is this the levi west you've been telling me of look at that scar and mark on his cheek this is blueskin himself subchapter fourteen in the chest which blueskin had dug up out of the sand were found not only the goldsmith's bills taken from the packet but also many other valuables belonging to the officers and the passengers of the unfortunate ship the new york agents offered hiram a handsome reward for his efforts in recovering the lost bills but hiram declined it positively and finally all i want said he in his usual dull stolid fashion is to have folks know i'm honest nevertheless though he did not accept what the agents of the packet offered fate took the matter into its own hands and rewarded him not unsubstantially blueskin was taken to england in the scorpion but he never came to trial while in newgate he hanged himself to the cell window with his own stockings the news of his end was brought to Lewes in the early autumn and squire hall took immediate measures to have the five hundred pounds of his father's legacy duly transferred to hiram in november hiram married the pirate's widow end of section fourteen